Ariel Francisco's 2020 book, A Sinking Ship is Still a Ship, is a bilingual collection of poems from Borough Press, featuring Spanish translations by José Nicolás Cabresa Schneider. And it is a rumination on many subjects, but with the theme of Florida's reclamation by the ocean, a consistent backdrop. There's lots of poems about insomnia, as well as a few about traffic, garbage collection, finding a scratch-off ticket in a used book, and so on. Lots of haiku also, which immediately endears it to me. Ariel discusses the book with us in today's episode, and we get to hear a little about his own work as a translator, the moment he realized he missed Florida after living out of state for a few years, the resilience of coastal cities, and our mutual admiration of James Wright, Basho, Jack Kerouac, and others. I'm Christopher Nank, and welcome to the Florida Book Club. I'm here with Ariel Francisco, author of A Sinking Ship is Still a Ship and many other works, and English translator of many Latin American poets, uh, hopefully all of which we'll discuss with him today. So uh, welcome to the Florida Book Club, Ariel. Thanks for having me. I'm excited okay. to be here. <laughs> yeah, the excitement is all mine, too. So um, anyway, as as I was telling you off camera, I have a deep love of haiku. So uh, we will <laughs> hopefully that will form a bulk of our conversation to some degree. Mm -hmm. But first off, this is a bilingual volume. Uh, there's Spanish translations facing the English versions. Um, despite your work as a translator, um, I noted you did not translate these into Spanish yourself, though. You outsourced that, I suppose, is one way yeah. to put it. So I'm curious what that was like, you know, kind of seeing someone else's interpretation of your work, because I've, I've always felt translation is as much a work of adaptation and, and, and interpretation as it is just, you know, a, a kind of a, a, you know, denotative and, and sort of dictionary level endeavor. So can you tell us a little about that experience of, of seeing them translated by someone else? Yeah, for sure. Um, it was wonderful. And, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think that's, the major reason why I wanted somebody else to do it. Um, it would be, I think it would be super boring and kind of bizarre in an uninteresting way to, to translate my own work, but to have somebody else do it and, and see it go through that process. Um, and being a translator myself, I understand the need for space and the actual creative process that goes into translation. Some people do think that it's just like very dictionary based and that's not, uh, that's not true because a poem is not just information. You can't translate it the way you would like a court document or something where it has to be like exact, right? You have to be able to translate uh, the intention, the the poetic techniques that that go behind it. Um, so it's very interesting uh, because some of there's a couple of poems that it, being completely sincere are better in Spanish than in English, uh, and it was really it was really kind of incredible to encounter that. And it was kind of too late to revise <laughs> towards the translations that I thought were, were better, but it was a, a kind of fascinating experience. Um, and that's something that, that I continued to do. So uh, a sinking ship is still a ship was my second book. I didn't quite have the, the audacity to, to ask for a bilingual translation when, when my first book came out. Um, but since then, my third book is also uh, published bilingually and my, my fourth uh, forthcoming one as well. So that's something that I intend to to keep on doing. And it's it's just a lot of fun. Um, and it brings the work also to an audience that I really value, which is the the Spanish reading audience, my, my parents, my family, uh, a lot of my people down in Miami. Uh, that was one of the best experiences with this book was, you know, a lot of my buddies bought it for their parents. 
not because they have a particular interest in poetry, but just because like, you know, they could read it. They, it was, it was about the place that they lived in and it was in the language that they engage with. Uh, so that was really wonderful. Oh, that, that, it's really cool. And and with my, uh, my six years of schoolboy Spanish, I guess, <laughs> you know, I was, I was really curious about some of the choices that were made there. There's the poem, um, about watch i can't remember the exact title but it's like watching planes take off all high on shrooms and uh, oh, sure. i noticed that it was translated as i think under the effect of hongos not champignones that's what i thought mushrooms were but i don't yeah. <laughs> but, but anyway so it was like i wondered like you know it's choices like that that fascinate me and it's like makes me think i'll never be able to do that because i was like <laughs> is there no word for high in spanish or did he just choose to say it this way you know it, it, it's like little decisions like that where you know i wonder like when you read them you know it's like you're saying it's like you're reading it in, in, a, in a completely different vein like an adaptation yeah it's very cool it's it's like a different version of myself um and it's very funny too because there are so many different kinds of spanish uh nico who who did the translations there he's um he's he's guatemalan also uh but i remember my my dad is dominican and my dad was reading some of the translations and he was like oh i would have used I would use this word instead of that word, but because he he speaks a very different, uh, you know, Dominican Spanish being quite different from from Central American Spanish. So it was that aspect of it was also uh, again just like super interesting and fun um, to to see and engage with. No, and and you preempted a question I was going to ask, so we won't get the but but you know why like why it's important to you to have bilingual, you know, uh, like a, a translation in Spanish. So I mean, it's... yeah. It, it, it is. I mean, and in addition to that, like I said, it's sort of fascinating if you know a little bit of Spanish to sort of see the, uh, the choices. Because I, I've always held, and I've told my students this. I, I don't know how much I really believe the same word, but I thought that poetry is one of those things that's that's very hard to translate. You know, because of the things you're talking about, like so much depends on the meaning or the cadence or the, you know, the significance of a particular word, maybe. So yeah, um, it always seems really dicey. It, it is. I, I always argue, um, you know, I, I would trust a non-fluent poet translating poetry over like a perfectly fluent non-artist translating poetry, because, again, that, you know, if if you only have the language, it would be very similar to like a machine and you can't do that. Like try to put a poem into Google Translate. It'll come out like nonsense. Uh, you need those, it those elements awesome. of, of the medium. Um but it's true again. Like when I when I look for projects to translate, I look for things that are not similar, like in an egotistical way, but but similar to my own writing, like image driven, lyrical, like the things that I know how to do. I would have I wouldn't seek out a, a very experimental Spanish language poet to translate because I can't do, do those things in English. So I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to solve those problems. Translation always presents problems, but those problems are problems of technique and craft, um, and so you want to find those. Uh, works that value the same kind of things you value that way you have the tools to solve those problems in in english no that that makes a lot of sense and it, it's weird like yeah, i was gushing a, a second ago about how much i love haiku and this volume contains quite a few which were were great yeah. but uh so i i really enjoyed a lot of these but it, it's like sort of related to that in a way and i'll sort of lead into what i was talking about or better that <laughs> next but but the um but just the idea of like something like haiku, like I was saying, where it's like, you know, with the syllables and the form, it's like that seems like it would be a little bit more tricky to translate as well to get the I don't know how much that was a, uh, you know, sort of challenge for for the translator or anything or 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 if you wrote them having that in mind that they would be translated. But um, it's uh, I, I like I, as um, 
I told you off camera, it's since it's a form that you return to a lot in this book, and a lot of them reminded me of uh, Nobuyuka Yuasa's translation of uh, Basho's Narrow Road to the Deep North inspired me to, you know, it's a lot of travel haiku and stuff like that. But what attracts you to that form? Or at least what 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 attracted to it, you to it for this particular book? Sure, yeah. Um, what initially attracted me about the form, I think I encountered Basho sometime in in high school, I can't quite remember. I have like a, a weird kind of semi-memory of it or maybe something I made up. Um, but it seemed very accessible. Like whenever I was stuck, uh, when I was younger and I, I couldn't quite work on a poem, I was like, well, I can write a haiku, right? I can write three lines. I can kind of, so it became this little sort of practice um, whenever I wanted to write, but I found myself stuck on a particular project. And I always found given forms uh, very difficult you know, the, the sonnet, the Sestina, the Villanelle, I always struggled with those in in, in workshops um, and still do. I've, I've never written one of those, you know, what I call like the Eurocentric forms, right? Um, never written one that, that I was happy with. Uh, and I'm, I'm not quite sure what the issue is, but it's not just the syllables. I think it's trying to, the, the parameters of, of prosody often bother me. Um, but the haiku to think in syllables and not have to think about uh, the, the IMs and the trochees and to try to kind of find them naturally. Uh, it gave me a lot of access and it, it allowed me to kind of produce these, these very small poems. And I found, I can't remember this came first or after, but with my sort of my regular poems, I, I did kind of at a certain point figure out that I tended to build my images in, in three parts. Um, you'll see a lot of poems in that book also in, in my previous book are written in tersets. I tend to have like a, three lines and three lines and three lines. So I think there is something natural for me about the haiku based on kind of how I figured out a way to, to put a poem together. Um, and the, the haiku very much valuing the image, right? That That's kind of always at, at the core. It's like a tiny little snippet. And that tends to be how I, how, how I start a lot of my poems. Um, so I think it, it just kind of like naturally compelled me to gravitate to that form. And a lot of them also, uh, written in the car or presented as being written in the car and a lot of that book happening in traffic. So trying to find some kind of peace in, in what to me at, at that time was just like the, the worst place for me to be in. Like my hell was being stuck in Miami traffic. And so there was something funny about like writing these tiny little peaceful form uh, poems to, to combat that in a way. Uh, hey, look, man. I, I yeah, I'm looking at reading Basho while at a standstill on I-95. Just for our listeners, yeah. I'm taking a look at that now. <laughs> hey, believe me, we, we we I got plenty of those problems up here too. So uh, I I I'm, yeah. <laughs> I always hear I'm always trying to look for some sort of Zen moments while I'm just sitting in traffic. Stop. Yeah, <laughs> I completely sympathize with that. Um, another thing I was curious about you you had I I am way into dedications, epigraphs, things like that too. You um. What I, I'm curious, you, you you had a quote from uh, Lee Young Lee, yeah, um, who wrote the great poem Persimmons. I, I, I've yeah. taught that in like classes. Um, <laughs> but the quote here is just says "Ask the Sea," and I was I was curious what the significance of that epigraph was. Oh sure, um, I just thought it it encapsulated the book pretty well. Uh, again, all the the water image, a lot of the other authors invoked um, either died via water or where I was kind of conjuring them in the, in these watery images, right? Lipo, uh, Hart Crane, um, Paul Ceylon, 
Um, so that's that's very deliberate. Uh, and so I, I like that epigraph. And I can't remember if it's from a poem of his. It might have been from an interview or, or from that kind of bizarre memoir that he has. Um, but just the simplicity of it, uh, again, like the vastness of the ocean in such a small line, like, we, you know, it would be impossible to ask to see why it's why it's doing this is kind of part of part of um, an aspect of the book. So I, I think I just I, I must have encountered it while I was writing the book. And I was, you know, it's one of those like, yeah, this is it, you know, um, but I do like that it's very small in getting at this kind of impossibly gigantic thing. Um, which, yeah, not to, not to skip ahead, but I think that ties into yeah the question about the last poem in the book. I think that's that's the a similar sentiment. I think the epigraph and the the last poem kind of create that sandwich of you know this this larger thing that is actively consuming um, the place I call home. Yeah, yeah. The the sea can stand anything. I can't. Final poem there, and and yeah, that image of feeling completely insignificant next to this uh, huge, you know natural force or entity you know the movement of the sea and yeah i feel like a lot of those these poems do that like providing you know like i said some very alluring imagery i love nature imagery and ecological themes so i'm drawn to that i mean nature taking back miami in various forms up here but yeah but there's also this kind of naturalistic theme you know i thought this idea that nature doesn't care about or defer to human agency or yearnings desires schedules or achievements like None of it, like, like saying, so there's the, there's a folly in sort of asking the sea, like, why? It's just, it's indifferent to those things, you know? It's like, that's one of the reasons we can't hold it back or compete with it or anything like that. And I've seen that theme in a lot of, I guess, specifically Florida-based ecological works, you know, in, in, in recent years. Uh, Karen Russell's great story, uh, The Gondoliers, has the yeah. scene about the new Miami that's underwater and the seawall failed, you know, well in the future. I mean, it it just seems like that's, you know, increasingly becoming a topic that, that you know, uh, uh, literature and art are, are concerned with. So, um, but there also seems in some of these to be this active wish for deliverance from and for Miami, you know, uh, that there's... I don't know, like regrets, misgivings, you know, uh, even resentments about about living here. You know, um, there's an ambivalence, at the least, I would say, about living in Florida, like poems like Sinking City, Don't Ever Come to Florida, Thinking I See a UFO in the Everglades or Thoughts While Taking Out the Trash, I thought was really pointed. <laughs> I, I quoted the final line of that to a couple people. And of course, you know, everybody it's like when it's a Floridian making cracks like that, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, if I heard someone from yeah. out of state say that, I'd be pretty mad. But uh you know, I mean, it's it's I mean, how have your feelings about the state on this point evolved or moderated, you know, assuming the speaker shares your viewpoints and that it's you. Sure, and sure. You know, you don't live in Florida currently, but I mean, is, yeah. it, is it still do you still have that sort of I don't know, love no, relationship? it kind of seemed like in a way it's softened a bit. Um, but it is, you know, the, the ambivalence is, is very intentional. Um, again, you know, I, I, we moved to Florida when I was five and I lived there until I was 28. And Miami in particular, South Florida from 11 to 28, um, which for me was too long. I just, um, and again, I, you know, not to get into the geography of Miami, but I lived in, in North Miami, kind of Northwest and everything, uh, the Miami that people know about is in the Southeast part. So like, just, you, you know, I would drive like 90 minutes to go to a poetry reading and spend another 30 minutes looking for parking and that like that's that's what i had to do to so that's that's kind of where a lot of that ambivalence comes from but it is meant to be kind of cartoonish like it has to be this exaggerated sort of way so nobody actually thinks you know like i don't actually want the ocean to come and, and take the city but i have to present it in a way that's almost like a you know like a lex luther kind of exaggerated um 
or or I always joked as well that that it's kind of like a you know a kid yelling at his stepdad like you're not my real dad right like you always kind of regret it in a way um or the same way like every punk band has an album or a song about how much they hate their hometown but like you, you have to you have to love it in order to like criticize it in that way i think um again like you know talking trash about your favorite sports team right like the mm-hmm. like the people who say the worst things about the miami dolphins are the the dolphin fans right uh, it's it's that sort of it's that sort of kind of voice in the book um but it has softened so i, I moved to new york in 2018, I was there for three years, uh, returning to graduate school, and now I live in Louisiana since uh, 2021. And a very strange thing happened. Uh, I moved to Baton Rouge, now I'm in New Orleans, and it's not it's not culturally similar, but the the landscape is very very similar to to Florida. Um, and I I I for the first time I felt like I missed Florida, and it was very weird. Um, like sincerely, it was it was very bizarre to be like, oh, I don't actually like dislike it as much as as I thought. There are these things that remind me of it um, that make me long for it, which is which is strange. Again, I didn't you know actually hate it, but I I didn't miss it either. I miss my friends and my family, but I didn't I didn't miss the space until I came to Louisiana, just because certain things reminded me of it so much. Um, so yeah, that's that's actively changing. And now I live in New Orleans, which is. Is not like Miami at all, but it's different from everywhere else in the same way Miami is different. It doesn't really feel like part of it. It has this incredible kind of Caribbean sort of, you know, uh, this this multicultural aspect to it. But that's different from L.A. or New York. Uh, there's something about kind of being being right on the Gulf and, and being adjacent to all these other countries and cultures and languages um, that comes through here as well. And it's it's insane in in a similar way to Miami as well with all the Mardi Gras stuff. I mean the Mardi Gras stuff is happening right now. I was gonna say uh, it's about that time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it's just uh it's just wild. It's very cool. It's I, I like it here a lot. Um but yeah it does remind me of Florida in like uh like I don't know, like in a spiritual way if, if that makes sense. No, hey, and if there's a city that's more vulnerable than Miami or St. Petersburg yeah, yeah. to the ocean, it's it's New Orleans probably. Yeah, I uh, it's a, it's, I have a lot of feelings about it because I guess it is like a bowl. I guess. That's oh yeah, part it's below problem. sea level. I believe parts of yeah. it. It's so old too that it's like, well, I, you know, maybe it'll stick around. You know, somehow it, it keeps coming back and, and keeps regrowing and, and surviving. It's it survived a lot. Yeah, <laughs> uh, a lot more than than Miami has. I mean, it's just a, a significantly older city. It's it's very bizarre. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember being there and, and seeing those big walls, you know, where the yeah. levees are. And my friend was like, oh, yeah, the river's right behind there. And I'm like, I feel like we're standing below it. Like, you know, that sort of gives this feeling of, uh, you know, ominous. Like, there's more visual reminders of, like, yeah. how close the water is to you. But Absolutely. Um, but I absolutely a- a- agree with what you're saying about the spiritual similarity. Like, um, a friend of mine I went to uh, FSU with is from New Orleans. Uh, he grew up in Metairie, so it was like... He um he kind of had a similar thing like we talked about like how uh, New Orleans is to Louisiana as Miami is to Florida. It's like you can't really yeah, yeah. Ju- or Las Vegas is to Nevada. You can't judge the rest yeah. of the state based on this place. It's like so different and so much its own place and its own thing. So it, it's sorry. funny you mentioned that because we had the same the similar discussion. Mm-hmm. Right on. Um, so you already talked about and. and Thank you for explaining this because the connection with some of these um, uh, authors who I didn't I didn't get the connection to to sure, the water sure. you know the the yeah. water the deaths of uh, the water, but you did make a lot of allusions or have some tributes of sorts to uh, the works of other authors like James Wright um, 
you know, being a fellow native Ohio and I appreciated the, uh, the Jane oh, yeah. illusion. He's a favorite. He's just, I, th- I think he's been in all of my books. He's just, he's one of the top guys for me. That's someone who I, I come back to all the time. So yeah. Yeah. I, I have taught autumn comes to, uh, Martin's Ferry, Ohio, many times. Oh, sure. uh, that's yeah. uh, upon him. And he's, he's got some of that ambivalence. Um, you know, uh, damn, what's that poem that ends with, uh, you know, if the, the gist is that hell's on one side and, and, uh, Wheeling, West Virginia's on the other. And it's like, why would you, why would you cross the river just to end? Yeah. I don't, I don't remember. I, I, the yeah. only other one that comes to mind is the one about the small frogs killed on the highway. Like, I remember that made a big oh, sure. impression on me in college yeah. or uh, <laughs> where he's sitting in the hammock and just says, I have wasted my life, the speaker. Yeah. I can't remember what poem that is, but yeah, it made me think of, uh, well, so you had, yeah, you had James Wright, of course, Basho, Lee Poe, uh, Jack Kerouac, Frank, Frank Standiford. I mean, like you, you make all these allusions, uh, you know, Hart Crane, as you mentioned earlier. So what influence, you know, did these various writers have on these poems or on your work or your aesthetics, you know, um, sure. more generally, even the poem about uh, what contemplating the lionfish at the Miami Seaquarium. I don't know if you've ever read Julio Cortazar's story, uh, Axelon. No, I love his poetry, but I, I got to read that. But story it really now. reminded me that it's the guy who just shows up day after day and just stares at the axolotls <laughs> in the aquarium. So, uh, so yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm also curious if that incident you described in there really happened where you like banged your, uh, yeah, you know, but it was at the, um, it was at the Key West Aquarium, which is a lot stranger and smaller than the Miami Seaquarium. But for the purpose of the book, I was like, well, we don't, we don't get all the way down to Key West. So that's kind of one of my very literal minded things that, that sometimes dictates the poems. Um, but, but some of these authors, yeah, I mean, I, I really, you know, I loved Kerouac. I went through that phase, like a lot of dudes do in your, in your early twenties. Uh, yeah, we have a copy and, of, uh, on the road in your dorm room. <laughs> yeah. But I, I didn't know that he lived in Orlando for so long. That was, that was the kind of, um, what really pulled, pulled him into the poems for me. And there's another poem in there as well of, of him watching the rocket launch. Um, and it, cause he would have been, you know, it's that, that's kind of a fun gesture for me. Sometimes an access point into a poem is to like, imagine an unrecorded uh, incident. Um, but I, I just found it hilarious. He was living in Orlando, like at his mom's house when, when on the road was pub- like when he became Jack Kerouac, he was literally <laughs> in, in college park. I, and nobody seems to know that. And I'm like, that's, that's super interesting that this guy, you know, the, the whole kind of uh whatever counterculture sort of thing was like you know spitting distance of, of disney world this is yeah. kind of when it kicked off Wait, he died uh, in saint pete the kerouac he house died in saint pete. pete yeah they've yeah, done yeah, a yeah, lot yeah. Of, they've embraced it or they've tried to anyway yeah <laughs> but but he became you know he became who he is in orlando and i just i just find that like that those kind of details i find very very funny um, to think of him as like a Florida guy, Florida man. Yeah. Um, I know. I'm thinking like, like New York and San Francisco yeah, and all the places yeah. that he's going in there. Yeah, but literally, literally living at his mom's house in Florida when when he became, uh, you know, when immortal essentially, right? Um, so that's that's kind of how he he came into the picture. Uh, Hart Crane, I hadn't read in, in a long time, and when I was working on this book, I was working uh, for a poet named Gerald Stern who just passed last year, I think. Um, he, he lived part of the year on, on my Miami beach and, um, he hired me, he would dictate, he couldn't quite type anymore. So I had to like type up his poems. Uh, but he really just wanted like somebody to like a, another poet to, to chat with. I think the person who was doing it before was some kind of film student. And so all of his stories and illusions were kind of lost on them. Uh, so it was, it was a lot of fun. And one of his favorites was Hart Crane. He kept going back to that Brooklyn bridge poem. Uh, so I went to revisit Hart Crane uh, and didn't realize, again, as I'm working on this book, I'm thinking about all this water imagery in Florida and Hart Crane uh, drowned in, in the Gulf of Mexico. 
um, under mysterious circumstances, they don't know if he fell off or, or if he jumped off. Um, so that's kind of how he came into the picture there. Um, I'm blanking on on who else you asked about now. So. Oh yeah, like Frank Standiford. Um, oh yeah, yeah that's oh. um, that that was just very literal. I had somebody was was telling me about him or I encountered a poem of his um and you know I bought it used and it came in the mail and quite literally there was like a scratch off ticket in and uh, on a particular poem and again thinking about the way he died also so I already had like the death of the poet in mind and then paired with like this strange image of like you know a lottery ticket something that's that's meant to kind of give you a chance or you know some kind of hope um so that, that's a poem that just kind of came out of out of circumstance uh and fortunately I was in a particularly uh creative mode where I could just be like oh this is like straight into the poem when when that book came in the mail um yeah 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 <laughs> that is that is a really cool story especially you know as most of us have done with these scratch offs just you know kind of the growing realization as you scratch like oh it was like loss after loss and it's like yeah you realize okay this is yeah. I'm not winning the quarter million <laughs> dollars basically yeah <laughs> <laughs> so um are these still, you know, even though you're you're not living, you haven't lived in Florida in a while. I mean, it sounds like you still have some very strong connections here. I mean, for some yeah, like, yeah. very tangible reasons you talk about. But are these still themes, images, and places, you know, that resonate with or inspire you, like your work, even still? I mean, do you still feel a connection to what's happening, you know, socially and ecologically in Florida, despite? Yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's hard and it's hard not to. Um, and again, one of the first poems I wrote uh, when I came to Louisiana. Um, which I was lucky enough, it was it was published in the New Yorker. It came from I was sitting at a cafe uh, before the the graduate students uh, had their reading, and I and I swear to God I saw flamingo like way 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 overhead, uh, and that immediately you know you think of like the lottery billboard signs, and so that that was really that was the poem that kind of that was really the moment where I was like wait do I miss Florida? And then I kind of wrote a poem that was like asking that question. Um, but it always comes back. My, I have a book coming out later this year, uh, called all the places we love have been left in ruins. And it's anchored by this long poem called insomniami, which is a combination of insomnia and Miami. And it's, it's this, um, there's a version of it online at the Academy of American poets, but I've elongated it now. And it's really, um, going back. It's, it was initially, to be honest, it was made up of scraps from a sinking ship is still a ship. It was all these lines and, and images and metaphors that I couldn't build poems around. Those were like, it was the only good part of the poem. So I just kept cutting them and cutting them. And then I just kind of cobbled them all together. And then the book was already out. So I, I, again, I have this very literal minded thing where I was like, well, my books need to make a certain kind of sense. I already have my Florida climate change book. What do I do with this weird long poem? So I just kept working on it and working on it. Um, and then went back and, and started to revisit some of those other aspects. Um, so there's a poem in that book about, uh, my favorite place in the world growing up in South Florida was, was Hollywood beach. That's where we would skip school. It wasn't Miami beach. It wasn't, it wasn't Fort Lauderdale beach. It was kind of in between. And they built a Margaritaville there, which was uh, the the worst thing that could have ever happened. So I like this very, <laughs> I went to a wedding you know, there. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah. No, but I thought the same thing. I was like, why yeah, are they building was, these buildings 30 feet from the water? You know, that yeah, was it, was, it was, it was like devastating. It was, you know, just somebody took like a dump on, on my favorite place in the world. Um, and rest in peace, but but I wrote this long, like, fuck Jimmy Buffett poem. <laughs> Not long, but it's it was the opening poem in the book. Um, but poems about other places in Florida that have closed down or... or um, and again, these kind of, like, climate change-adjacent poems. Um, 
the the last one I wrote, I had to sneak it in because the book was due, but I read a, a news headline that scientists are trying to use AI to decipher whale songs. And I was like, oh, great. So you want the whales to yell at you about everything you're doing to the planet also is kind of like what's going on in that poem. So yeah, definitely still coming back, but from a slightly different angle, I think yeah, more in memory and more in, in concept uh, because I'm not there. And so I can't, I'm not going to pretend that I am there, uh, but I'm still finding other ways to, to write about it and engage with it. Yeah. No. So, hey, that's I, I you again preempted another question like what what work you have coming down the road, what we can expect to see from you. I was also curious, I mean, prefacing that a sinking ship is still a ship. Where do you view like how how um what did that this is going to seem like an odd question, but like what did this book mean to you like in the corpus of your of the rest of your work? Like where do you see this uh, book like its significance to you now like you know looking at it in the spectrum and then going forward, you know, how have you built on it? I mean, you've already answered a little bit of that. Yeah, um it's curious. I think it's definitely well, you know, I only have 3 uh, full-length books. Um it's definitely the most popular and I think because it's coming from this very specific uh place thinking about a specific audience even though it's expanded beyond that. Um, but I think it does, it seems to resonate with people in Florida and outside of Florida, which uh, I didn't anticipate, but it's, you know, and, and I think <clears throat> with all, all the climate change stuff, it'll be perpetually relevant. Um, and there's something, yeah, there's something about that, that ambivalence that, that rings true with those from Florida and then those, those from not Florida as well. Um, so it's, it's something I'm not quite sure. I, I think because at the time, it felt like a natural continuation. The way I, I wrote a lot of that book when I was still in grad school, because uh, I had finished my first book, which was my thesis, um, All My Heroes Are Broke. And that's in two explicit sections. The first section is in New York, um, which is where I was born, where you know my family kind of came together. And I spent uh, a few weeks there and revisiting you know my aunts and all the, you know, the places where I was from. And quite literally just like, you know, doing the Franco heart, I would just get on the train and just go somewhere and just walk around and, and try to, because I very desperately wanted to get back to New York uh, when I was at that age. Uh, and then the second half uh, was all these Florida poems and they're just, there was just more and more and more Florida poems. And I was like, okay, wait, I'm gonna, I need to close the door on this first book because I have this balance that I'm trying to do in terms of the structure, but all these Florida poems keep coming. So some of them I had to move, like the Lipo poem, that's, that's a much older poem uh, that was initially in, in the first book, but I decided to move it because it felt as, as I started to write more and more of these, uh, sinking ship poems, I was like, oh, this is actually belongs in book two. Um, so it, it feels like a very natural progression for my first book. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's been long enough for me to kind of zoom out more than that. Cause you know, it's, uh, some of those poems go back to like 2016, 2017, the book was published in 2020 in April, which is, you know, and my memory hasn't quite worked <laughs> since then, right? That's the beginning of the pandemic. I turned 30 in March and then my second book came out in April. And then, you know, it's it's been just a kind of weird brain fog since then. Yeah, uh, full, full going on four years here now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's hard to, it doesn't feel like four years at no. all. It doesn't feel like any, yeah, I don't know. I know this is a, a thing a lot of people are, are struggling with, but yeah, my concept of time uh, has been altered. In, in a pretty drastic way so yeah <laughs> all right so the book you were talking about though that's coming out this well when can we expect to see it do we have a title 
any kind of uh, yeah all the places we love have been left in ruins uh and my buddy uh shout out to george george benitez uh, he did the cover of a sinking ship he did this cover as well um you can find it online if it's not on the borough press website um it's on my instagram and, and i'm super happy with it um it it looks i just think it looks awesome uh it's due out in september uh we'll have galleys and stuff in the spring um, and I have a handful of translation books coming out this year. I think, I think five, it kind of lined up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, two, there's this, uh, fantastic. My second grad school thesis was on this poet. Um, he was from Haiti. He grew up in the D- Dominican Republic named Jacques Vieux. Um, and he was killed during the revolution of 1965. He was only like 23 years old, but he left this tremendous body of work. Uh, so I have a full length collection of his work coming out with get fresh books called poet of one island and then a, a chapbook with some archival material from the city university of new york lost and found project uh that should be coming out soon um that one's called permanence of the cry and then my my dad's book i'm super excited uh we finally found a, a publisher for it so his book should be coming out this summer with spoot and dieville based out of new york um it's called moonless earth and another great Dominican poet named Mateo Morrison, uh, a translation of his called Hard Equilibrium is also coming out from Spoot and Dieville, uh, I believe this summer also. And then I have another project with this very cool publisher based out of Spain. Um, he's a Chilean poet named Christian Olivares, uh, who now lives in Ohio. Uh, yeah, I think that's, I lose, I lose count. Um, again, the memory thing. But yeah, I think I have, I have quite a few books coming out this year. So it's going to be a busy, hopefully a busy year for me. Jeez, yeah, 2024. Look at We're going to need a, a completely different episode just to talk about your <laughs> translation work, man. I, I that's sure. stuff is fascinating to me. And uh, we'll have to have you back on when your uh, when your book comes out this fall. Yeah, yeah, I would love that. So, all right. Okay. Ariel Francisco, you are now a member of the Florida Book Club. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for attending this meeting of the Florida Book Club. There are links to Ariel's website where you can purchase his Florida Climate Change book, LOL, those were his words, on our website with this episode. We would clearly have needed a whole separate episode to discuss his own translation work, and hopefully he'll be back at the clubhouse once the next book drops this fall. Remember to support your local independent bookstores and public libraries. See you at our next meeting when we wrap up Season 9.